We'll move now into uh, to the fourth chapter of James as we're continuing to survey this book. The first sign of sickness is usually a symptom. There's some ache or pain, something that suddenly hits you and you know something's wrong. Not quite sure what, but it's a, it's a clue that there's something that's not right. And so at that point, diagnosis is important. We, we, we can't jump to treatment without first knowing that this is what the problem actually is. And so correct diagnosis is important, knowing what's actually wrong. And James 4 begins with one of the most common symptoms of sickness in the Christian life, and that is conflict. Maybe arguing, uh, fighting, uh, the more pleasant sounding, we're just having a disagreement. Uh, we, we put it that way sometimes around church, you know, when we're talking about what's going on at home. But God's word pulls no punches. If you look at James 4.1, it begins with a question. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? I like the Christian standard translation, at least of the first word in there, when it says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Wars is an appropriate translation of the word that James is using there. It's the same word Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 24 when he speaks of wars and rumors of wars. And so James is using it in a, to give us the sense of sustained conflict, that, that sort of on again, off again, and yet persisting kind of disagreement, of argumentation, of fighting with someone. Um, just going back and forth and this agitated back and forth that just keeps popping up. And then the word for fights, that's common in most of these translations. Simpler word just pictures two people squaring off against each other. The, the Greek could imply the idea of two people with weapons, but we've already seen in James chapter 2 that we have that in our speech. Our, our words can serve that function of being weapons. We can say things that are meant to hurt and to uh, be bitter and, and, and insult. And, and so James 4, 1 through 6, starting with that question, is diagnostic. It speaks to every single Christian who has struggled with conflict. That should be, I think, all of us. If you've never struggled with conflict, you either have stuffed a lot inside and not dealt with it, or you've somehow hunkered away from relationships completely, and you don't deal with other people. Because if you deal with people you deal inevitably with conflict. James 4, 1 to 5 really is meant to be diagnosing the source of our conflict. Next week, verse 7, Stuart will pick us up in, in, in verse 7 and take us on through the chapter, which is the treatment. Here's the diagnosis, now here's the treatment, here's the string of commands. And verse 6 is transitional because in verse 6, it's the hope. When you get a diagnosis of this is what's wrong and you get a plan of treatment, you want some kind of hope. You want someone to say that there, there is something good that can happen here. There is a way to treat this, and verse 6 serves that function. But diagnosis is crucial. I, I, I say this for myself and, and having counseled people for years and years on these things. It's at the point of diagnosis where things often go off the rails. If you're in conflict, fights, disagreements, call them what you want, the normal human tendency when we're diagnosing things is to blame the other person. Why am I in conflict? Why am I angry? It's because this person did something, or it's my circumstances. It's either another person or it's the circumstances I'm in. Now, we may, we may be smart enough to pause and ask, why am I fighting? Why, why do I keep 
persisting in this? Why do I keep raising my voice? And even if I don't raise my voice and it's not verbal, why am I still angry at you? Uh, Unfortunately, too often the answer to that is, well, it's because I had a bad day. I sat in traffic. Work was terrible. Um, This person lied to me. Whatever the circumstance might be, left to our own devices, we tend to diagnose anger and conflict as it's someone else's fault. You made me angry. You did this. You brought this on. If you had just listened to me, if you had done what I asked, if you didn't do what I told you not to do, then there would be nothing to fight over if you had simply followed what I said. If I didn't have this lousy job, if my car didn't break down, if my boss didn't make me work late, if I didn't have to sit in stupid traffic, on and on, everything would be good. People in circumstances. If that's how we diagnose the cause of our anger and our conflicts, if that's ultimately what we come to is pointing fingers at people and circumstances, then the treatment, the cure will be that the people change, that those around us, the the circumstances be different, that there's stuff external to us, and that just needs to do better. God should give me another job. My wife should just listen to me. My husband should be more helpful. My children should do what they're told and on and on. I would be so much happier and not arguing all the time if you would just be nicer to me, if you would just listen to me and do what I say. And if God would orchestrate all my circumstances just the way I want them, I would be so happy. Well, okay, we know that's not right, right? Let's be clear. There are very difficult people. There are people that you may have to engage with that are particularly hard to deal with. You may work for someone, you may be related to someone, living with someone who is really hard to get along with. You often have to interact with a person who is argumentative, who is nasty, who snaps into a rage, or who quickly gives you the cold shoulder, or who lies or complains often. That can be very, very challenging. And it may seem like the answer to that is just don't deal with that person or God fix that person and then everything will be fine with me. The problem with that, as we're going to see again in James chapter 4, is God doesn't let us make excuses for our own sinful responses, even if that person is difficult, very difficult to live with. My response comes from my heart. It's how I choose to to react to that person, to speak to that person. And and so God's word doesn't allow me to respond by being bitter or lying or raising my voice toward a difficult person. That's my fault, and I need to address it as such. James 4.1 starts by assuming the obvious. When he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, he doesn't say if. If you're having quarrels and fights, he says, what causes these things? James is assuming that these things happen, but the troubling thing is, he says, they're happening among you. They're happening among believers in Jesus Christ. And the question then we have to ask is, why? Why do these things happen? We've got to diagnose the cause for the conflict. If we don't examine our own thoughts and heart attitudes, then we just end up running in circles, blaming others. So James 4, 1 through 5 is of critical importance. It's a passage of scripture that 
For me personally, I go back to a lot. For me in counseling situations, I go to a lot. If you come with a conflict situation and you come for counseling and you come to one of the pastors here, inevitably somewhere along the line, we're going to open up to James chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, because there is so much here that speaks to why we do what we do. Because James 4, 1 through 5, tells me to look closely at the heart of the one person that I can affect, and that's mine. I can change my response. I can be different in what I say. That's where God wants believers in Jesus Christ to start. Not, not immediately pointing at the other person or even subtly blaming God by complaining about our circumstances, but examining my own heart and motives to see if I'm sinning and then to respond to that sin accordingly. So we're diagnosing. We're getting to what's behind outbursts and anger toward others. And, and let's face it if, it, if we're talking self-examination, that doesn't come easy. Because even in the process of looking at our own hearts, we're still wanting to say, but it, you know, it really was his fault or it really was her that provoked this in me. And so we're really trying to zero in here, and, and this is what James is doing because this is deceptively difficult. We need help in this. We often need help from brothers and sisters. Three areas that James is going to put forth to, to look at as we're trying to diagnose our hearts on conflict, anger, our passions, our prayers, and our priorities. Let me start with passions, verse 1, and then part of verse 2 of James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Why do you have conflicts? James is quick with the answer. It's your passions. It's what's going on in your heart. That Greek word for passions is the root from which we get our English word hedonism, pleasure. So he's speaking of things that are, are things that I define as pleasurable, that which which I enjoy, that, that's, that, that I crave because it's satisfying to me. So passions, cravings, desires, these are things that make me feel good and I desire them, and, and these desires can begin to rage in my heart. I want this so much. When it says at the end of verse 1 that these passions, your passions are at war within you, in the ESV, that's your passions are at war within you. That's the translators interpreting there. They're making an interpretive decision on their translation because what it literally says in the Greek is your, your desires are at war among your members. There's two ways to take that. The way the ESV does, which is essentially that, that your members meaning within yourself. So this is the, I, I, I want this, I, I want I want peace, I want calm, I want, I want everybody to leave me alone, and yet I know that I, I just came home from work, and I'm with my family, and I can't do that. that. And so there's this sort of tension internally of, I want this, but I know I shouldn't want this, and so there's a sense in which the, the, the conflicts, the passions are at war within you waging war against what's true and right. The other way to look at this, if it's the idea of passions at war among your members, probably fits the context better, and it's the idea that it's among the body, the, the very context in which James is speaking, and that my passions are driving me in a certain way, and I want something, and I don't want you to get in the way of it. And, and if you somehow thwart my desire, then, then there will be war. 
there will be conflict between us in some way. And so that's the idea of passions waging war among your members. If I don't get what I want, I'll be angry. These cravings in our heart can be sort of two different categories. They can be clearly sinful. I am craving something that I know God's word says I should not have that is not right for me as a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm craving something that is a a violation of God's law, but it brings me pleasure, and so I'm desiring it. That one we, we sort of know that's kind of obvious. I shouldn't be craving something that God has has said, I, I, I shouldn't, I, he's prohibited it, if you will. The, the other sense, though, is I may desire something that's good, something that God's word speaks about, but I want it so much that because of envy and selfish ambition, I am willing to sin to get it. it, it it's something that isn't prohibited from me. I want this relationship, I want this job, this feeling, whatever it is, and I am discontent if I don't get it to the point that you're probably going to know that I'm discontent. So when you don't let me do what I want, when you don't listen to what I want, when you um, in some way don't do things the way I want you to, when, when you are rude to me, when you thwart my desire in some way, when you do what I said not to do, everything within me now begins to, to crave that you do it right that, that you do it my way, that you listen to me, and the list goes on and on. Think about, think about your most recent conflict. Think about the last argument you had, and ask yourself, what did I want? What did I really want? Now, now don't, don't just go surface with me here. Think about the last conflict and think, what was my heart craving in that moment? As that, as that disagreement, that conversation began to, to ramp up and get louder, and get more intense, what was I wanting more than anything in that moment? What was I wanting that other person to do or to say? What was I craving? One of the ways that we help ourselves is by doing this kind of self-examination of what's going on in my heart in the midst of this? What am I longing for? In James 4, 1 and 2, God is graciously helping us see that our sinful conflicts often boil down to the cravings of our own hearts. I want you to do this, I want to hear this, and if I don't, and you've gotten in the way of fulfilling my desire, chances are I'm going to be angry with you. The consequences, James says, are evil. In fact, he says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Does he really mean murder here? You desire and you do not have, and so you kill someone. You're thinking, I've never done that. I'm good. I've never taken my conflict, my sinful craving, to the point of murdering someone, so let's go on, Pastor. Let's keep reading. I would have to believe that James has Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in mind here when he's saying these things. And what did Jesus say about the command to not murder in Matthew chapter 5? He describes it and says that you've heard it said you shall not kill, but I tell you that if you're angry at your brother, if you are insulting your brother, if you're calling your brother a fool, then you have violated the, the substance of the command, that you are guilty as a lawbreaker. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And so there is Jesus' teaching that our anger and insults and mocking violate God's sixth commandment. 
So there's that aspect of it, certainly, that James has in mind. But it's also worth noting that if you look at crime statistics, if you look at murder statistics in particular for cases where they've identified who the killer is, it's about a four-to-one margin that the one who's done the killing more often than not is acquainted with or related to the victim by about a four-to-one margin, the one being just strangers, that somebody who's an absolute stranger kills somebody else. The, the, the point being that in most of these instances, there has been some pre-existing relationship, and there was probably some point at which disagreement arose that led to anger, that led to envy and selfish ambition, and to finally leading to violence and even to the point of murder. So James is not just exaggerating a point here that our, our unchecked envy and ambition can eventually erupt into violent conflict. Our sinful passions, those desires that just churn in our hearts are dangerous. So James begins by addressing these passions. Second area he points to now is our praying. Pick up at the end of verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You do not have because you do not ask. And then when you ask, you spend it wrongly. James, when he talks about asking, this should make us think again back in James chapter 1, verse 5. Believer, when you are going through trials, what should you do? One of the things you should do is ask God for wisdom. You should pray for God to help you as you walk through this trial. If any of you lack, lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. If we truly desire something, then we should ask the one who is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Your heavenly Father who loves you, who desires to provide for you, you are his child. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5 that, that we're not to be riddled with anxiety over God's provision for us, that he already knows what we need, and he is able to provide for us, and we should trust in him and seek first his kingdom, depend on him and ask him. But James describes two ways here, two prayer-related ways in which we can make matters worse when it comes to our craving. The one is to not pray at all. Total lack of prayer. You do not have because you do not ask. Let me just give you three, and, and there's probably more, but three reasons why we don't pray when it comes to asking for things. Um, the first one, especially in the context here, is because what we want is a sinful desire. Because we know that what we want is wrong, it, it, it's, it's something that I want for my pleasure, but it's not something that God wants for me, and that's clear in his word, and so I'm, I'm not going to go to God and ask him for something that is, that is clearly sinful. That, that would be wrong. And, and when your heart is craving and envying things, when it's making idols of, of people and things, what does that do to our prayer life? It tends to move us away from communion with God. It tends to move us to a place where we're not in fellowship with God, and so we're not praying. We become prayerless. So one of those areas is just asking for things that are simply sinful desires. There's also times when we desire something good, and yet we're still not praying because we're just going to go ahead and get it apart from God. I want it, so I get it, and I don't need to ask God. Sam Albury writes, Prayerlessness arises from a sense of independence from God, so that instead of praying about our desires, we indulge them. Rather than trusting in the Father who delights in giving good gifts to his children, we ourselves decide what is good and seek to gain it through our own efforts. One of the curses of widely available credit is that we don't have to pray and say, God, I, I want this, I, I'm trusting you and I'm praying and I'm asking you for it. 
I can simply buy it and put it on a six-year payment plan. I, I can get whatever it is that I crave, I see it, and I want it, and I can put it on the card, and I can have it delivered to my front door. And I've never had to ask God a thing about it or depend on him in any way, or at least seemingly depend on him any way for it. And that lack of dependence translates over to not praying for God's provision. Third reason for our prayerlessness, that especially in the context of conflict, is sometimes we're just sinfully content with our anger. Sometimes in the midst of conflict, we don't want to pray. We, we just want to vent. We just want to be angry in this moment, and we don't want to hear Maybe you've heard this from your spouse. I've certainly heard it when you're in the midst of, of one of your you know, diatribes about what's wrong and why it needs to be fixed, and then you hear those sweet words that say, maybe you should pray about this. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's keen. I'll do that right now. No, actually, first I want to vent. I really want you to just get my point. I want you to hear me. We struggle with prayerlessness because we want to wallow in our sin. But he also says it's, it's not just prayerlessness. He says there in, in, in verse 3 that uh, you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You, another way of saying that is you ask with wrong motives. The word for wrong in verse 3 is the, the Greek word, common Greek word for evil. Um, and so it's, you're asking God for something that really you, you intend to solely spend on your own pleasure. This is, this is all for me. I don't know, God, if this is for your glory. I don't know if this is your will for me. I don't know how this makes your name greater at any point in my life or anybody around me. I just want it because I know how much I enjoy it. And that's what he's saying here. You ask wrongly. You ask to spend it on your own passions. Commentator writes, the gift-giving God is here manipulated as a kind of vending machine, precisely for purposes of self-gratification. We want God to give us what we're seeking because we think we should have it. And, and again, I'm not necessarily talking about evil things, the desire for a spouse or for marital harmony or for a child or for a better job or for healing from a disease. Nothing wrong with the desire unless it becomes an idolatrous craving. It's not God. What is your will for me in this? How are you working in me through this? How are you helping me to grow in steadfastness and learn more about you and, and see my own character change? It's, God, I want this. I simply want this because I will feel better if you give it to me. If God has chosen to not fulfill some good desire of mine, we need to, we need to be assured that God is good. And there, there's a reason that he has not answered that prayer in exactly the way that we have sought. We still need to trust that he is wise. It's not all about making me happy in the shortest amount of time. We need to guard against praying wrongly. So why am I asking for this? Why do I want it? Do I just want my circumstances changed? Or do I want this because it, it will help me to glorify God? Because in some way, as I, 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 I want to see God work in this. Our motives matter. One of the purposes for praying in the first place is to help to align my will with God's. It's not so much that I'm trying to contort God to answer my prayer. It's that I'm trying to help my heart line up with what God's desire is for me. And so I'm humbly praying and saying, Lord, this is what I desire, but I'm praying for your will in this. I'm praying that you'll teach me contentment if you don't answer it in the way that I want. I'm praying that you'll show me what it means to depend on you and to rest in you and wait on you. One way to ensure that I'm not praying wrongly is for my heart to be convinced that God is good. 
and that I can, I can trust him at all times, even when he doesn't seem to be answering my prayers. Psalm 84, 11, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Good. That, that, that last part of that verse gets ripped out of its context. God wants you to have all kinds of good things. Well, that is good as defined by God. There is nothing that, that God believes that is good for you and will bring glory to him that he seeks to withhold from you. He wants to give you that which is good for you to be like Christ, for you to grow in maturity, for you to know God better and glorify God better. He wants to give you that. He longs to. My creator knows what's best in any any given situation and has the power to provide it. Otherwise, and we've said this often through the book of James, otherwise the the temptation here is to be double-minded. Profess faith and trust in Jesus Christ while still yielding to envy and selfish ambition. I still want what I want, and I want it in my time. Passions, prayers, and then the last one is priorities. We read verses 4 and 5, James 4, 4 and 5. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? That, that phrase, that address there at the beginning of verse 4 should seem stunning. Because as we've been going through the book of James, there are frequent times when he has paused as he's changed subject, and he has says, my beloved what? Brothers. Often he says, my brothers. He's, he's assuming the best of them. And so he frequently says, my dear brothers. All of a sudden here you've got you adulterous people. What's going on here? Part of it is going back to verse 1, and it's the assumption that there, that the knowledge that there are conflicts and fights and quarrels going on within the Christian community. He's looking at the, the community of believers, and he's seeing all the warring and fighting that goes on out in the world, and he's saying, how is this happening? How are we as a body who profess faith in Jesus Christ looking like the world when it comes to satisfying our own cravings? That should not be. And so he says, you, you adulterous people, conflicts become far too common amongst professing Christians, and he's saying, this is not who we are. By the way, just a side note on, on, on verse 4, when he says, you adulterous people, that's the ESV's translation, which makes it neutral. James actually uses the feminine in the Greek, you adulteresses. He's not being sexist at this point, in case anybody says to you, oh, see, this is some sexist comment by James. It, it is the typical covenant language from both Old Testament and New Testament of God being joined to his people. God is the groom, the Savior is the groom, and the body is the bride. And, and what he's describing here is what's said often about Israel. You are committing adultery. You have strayed from the one who has betrothed you to himself. You've, made this, you've entered into this covenant with God, and you're violating this covenant, and you are committing adultery. And how so? James says the, the way that you're doing it is you are embracing the world as your friend. You are showing affection to God's enemies, and you are snuggling up with the world, and by doing so, you are showing hostility toward God. As James uses this word world here, he's using it the same way Paul does in Romans 12, do not be conformed to the world. Don't don't be conformed to the system, the values, the ethics, the way that the world thinks about things. It's the world he describes in 1 Corinthians 1 when he compares the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. 
The world is everything that is hostile to God. The world is everything that says, yeah, I know God says this and says that, but that's just a bunch of do's and do nots, and you can pick and choose, and you don't have to do what God says. That's, that's the world's approach to the wisdom of God. It is man-centered, and it is unwilling to bow to the Lord, and the world's wisdom opposes all that God says in his truth. The world displays this dishonor of God all the time, all throughout the week, every day. There was a, a tweet this week from a former pastor who claims to be reimagining Christianity. That pastor's description, not mine. Reimagining Christianity, tweeted this, had several thousand likes and a lot of retweets. Said this, I know this is hard for many Christians, but people don't need Jesus. You may need Jesus, and that's okay. That doesn't mean everyone else does. Believing that you know what others need is both supremacy in you and wildly disrespectful of others. That is the profound wisdom of man. You don't need Jesus. No one needs Jesus. If you want to say that you need Jesus, if that makes you feel better somehow, you say that. That's man's wisdom. God's wisdom is Jesus Christ speaking in John chapter 15, saying, I am the vine and you are the branches. And you must be attached to me because unless you are attached to me, unless, unless you are abiding in me, you will not bear fruit and you can do nothing apart from me, he says in John chapter 15. There's man's wisdom, no need of Jesus. And there's Jesus speaking and saying, apart from me, you can do nothing and you will be like a branch that's withered and thrown away. World's wisdom, God's wisdom. The warning from James here, James 4.4 says, if you are seeking friendship with the world, you are in a dangerous place. If you are trying to, to, to cozy up to the world and to have the world's approval and to think like the world or just to pick and choose worldly sort of philosophies in the context of everything that we've seen in James 4 about sinful desires, that friendship with the world is often a way that we simply rationalize our sinful cravings. We tolerate and even embrace the world's way of thinking and the, the, the world's approach to ethics and values and all of those things because it makes our desires seem okay. And, and, and so we, over time, become more comfortable with worldly attitudes towards greed, worldly attitudes towards entertainment, towards sex, towards expressing anger, towards attention-seeking, towards dishonesty, uh, towards partiality. Whatever it is... We start to look more like the world because we show friendship with the world's way of thinking about these things. We'll do it the way the world does because it's easier and it feels better. This is prioritizing. This is saying, I, I, I choose this way over that. And so when it comes to our sinful cravings, this is one of the ways I, I rationalize my cravings is by aligning myself and befriending the world. We prioritize worldly attitudes over God's wisdom by showing affection for the things and ideas and practices of the world, even when that means compromising God's truth. Two, two quick side notes about verse 4, and then we'll move on. When he says, do you not know, the presumption of the question is that there were professing Christians who somehow needed to be made aware that their, their friendship with the world was somehow wrong. Do you, do, do you not know this? That if you continue to embrace the world, that you are making yourself hostile to God. Now, my, my guess here is that that may have been just them rationalizing their affection for the world as just being compassionate. And loving sinners. I get that, but that gets overused as well. There's a common refrain today that, that we need to love sinners, and we do. 
but we need to love them in a way that is truthful and, and in accord with God's word. So look at, think about Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, that it, it's people talking about Jesus and they're criticizing him. And it says that he, he eats with unbelievers, that he is, James eleven nineteen. 19, Jesus was a friend of sinners. And, and that tends to be our rationalization for affection with the world is I need to be a friend of sinners like Jesus was. The very next verse, we usually stop. There's kind of a paragraph break there. The very next verse is, then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Yes, Jesus loves people. He loves sinners. He goes to sinners, but he loves them too much to leave them where they are lost and dead in sin. He goes to them and loves them by speaking truth to them and urging them to turn from their sin and, and to enjoy the glory that is God's and to come to him and, and call God Father and become a child of God by trusting in Jesus Christ. He calls them to turn from their sin and repent. He does what friends are supposed to do by, by helping them in the midst of their lostness and darkness and pointing them toward the light. The priority for Jesus was to do the will of God. He doesn't unnecessarily alienate unbelievers, but it also means that he tells the truth about their sin and their need to repent and be forgiven. One last point about verse 4. It says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, that word for wishes speaks of choice. James is confronting people who are willingly choosing the world. They are not just sort of helplessly being dragged off into the world they are wishing to be friends with the world. They are, by their actions, by the company they keep, by the choices that they make, they are actively moving in the direction of embracing and showing affection to the world. And that's what James is warning about, is whoever would crave the world's friendship is making themselves into an enemy of God. The, 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 the thing we need to keep seeing in James is James does not allow for the squishy middle ground that, that we kind of like to find, which is there's, there's God's way and there's man's way, and maybe I can somehow navigate and, and sort of pick and choose and like the things that I like about God and the church, but, but really like these other things about the world and sort of make them all compatible. And, and, and James continues to say to us, do not be double-minded. Do not profess to live in this kingdom and, and call Jesus Christ king and yet continue to show affection for the world and the world's ways. It's one's disloyal to the other and the two are not compatible. James 4.5 is a, is a difficult verse. Um, it, it, it's oddly worded. Um, it's one that we could spend a long time talking about just some of the interpretive issues. The, the thing that's probably most difficult about the verse is he says that Scripture says, and then it puts in quotes, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, and you'll find that there's no note in your Bible that tells you what verse that's pointing to. Typically, when it says Scripture says, it means in the Old Testament, this verse says this, and you can find the verse. You will not find this verse in the Old Testament. So there's all sorts of discussion about what exactly James means here. I would suggest to you that he's essentially summarizing a message of Scripture, a sense of Scripture. And when he uses the, the, the word here about jealousy, he's not talking about a good kind of jealousy. It's a word when it's used in the Greek that typically talks about evil passions. And, and so I, I think the sense of what he's communicating here is that humans... It's talking about the spirit of man. Humans, when left to their own devices, are a fallen people, and humans by nature crave. We, we crave sinful things. We are naturally drawn toward the world. Our envy, our desire, 
apart from the intervention of God, apart from the grace of God saving us, our desire is away from God and, and exactly what he just said in the prior verse, it is toward friendship with the world. Apart from God's intervention and his wisdom, the heart of man quite naturally and quite easily flows toward self and toward the world. Which is why, brothers and sisters, we so desperately need help here. That's why we need God's wisdom and we need the help of brothers and sisters because our natural bent is toward envy and selfish ambition. If you follow the, the, the sequence that he's given us, going back to chapter three, that, that the wisdom of the world is envy and selfish ambition. What does that lead to? It leads to cravings, desires, passions inside of me. I want this. This is what's best for me. I, wa I want it. And then what does that lead to when I don't get it? Conflict. Anger, outbursts, being nasty to other people, all of the stuff that we've, we've already seen. What does that lead to? It leads me away from fellowship with God. It leads me away from communion with him. And so my prayer life suffers as a result. I don't want to pray. And when I do pray, I'm praying with wrong motives. And that leads me now to this place of, of just loving the world, of having affection for the world. He's, he's really drawn a, a pattern here that started with the wisdom of the world. And if we, we move that way, we move toward conflict and toward affection with the world. That is the bent of the spirit of man apart from the gracious work of God, which is why we need grace, which is why verse 6 comes in. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Maybe you, yourself, have sat in a doctor's office, or maybe you've sat there with somebody else when the doctor has said, all right, we've run all the tests, and you have cancer or you have some other kind of disease. And here's the, here's the treatment plan. Here's the course that we're going to follow. You're looking in that moment, if you're able to focus on anything in that moment, you're looking for, for something to hold on to. You're looking for some, some measure of hope. Doctor, tell me that there's, there's something here that I, I, I know that this has the potential to, to change. And that's, that's what James is doing here in verse six. This is the transitional verse. You are being, we are being convicted. The, the symptom has been conflict. The diagnosis has been our heart's desire and our cravings. We need to respond to that. And what verse six says is, there is grace. There is grace from God to help you in this area. I said to you last, at the beginning of the service that next week, Pastor Stewart will pick up in verse seven and shift to the treatment. But, but what God wants us to know before he starts this string of imperatives in verse seven, to submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, all of the imperative commands. Before he says any of them, he says, listen, listen to me. There's hope. God desires to show you grace and to help you in all of this. There is grace for those who will humble themselves before him. There is grace for those who will ask for it. To, to, to go back to, what he said earlier. You don't have because you don't ask. Listen, if, if anything in, in this passage has convicted you, maybe, maybe more than one thing has convicted you as I've had this week, as I've meditated on this passage. If anything has convicted you, if you've been convicted by your struggle with anger, by the sinful cravings in your heart, by the ease with which you seem to move toward raising your voice or, or brushing somebody off with a cold shoulder, if, if you have been convicted by how easily you are befriending the world and moving its direction, then know this. If you will humble yourself before God, 
if you will go to him and say, God, I'm, I'm sinning and I need help. I need your forgiveness. God gives grace. He is anxious to empower us toward obedience. He's anxious to help us in this. If we will ask, this is where he says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If we're going to stay in this condition, we're going to walk away from James 4, 1 through 5 and say, well, it is what it is. That's where I'm at. Then we are standing in the face of God and saying, take me as I am, but I ain't changing. That's just the way it is, God. God is urging and saying, repent. Humble yourself before him. Acknowledge the sinful cravings. When you bow before him and ask for help, he is eager to give you help and pour out his grace. I'm going to take a moment when we, we're going to close in prayer, but what I want to do just for the first minute or so is just be quiet. Uh, my, my hope and prayer is that as you've thought about this passage now, as I've been thinking about it all this week, you've been convicted about something somewhere about anger or conflict or craving or friendship with the world. And I just want you to take a quiet minute or two and just talk to God and just humble yourself before him and acknowledge your sin and ask for his help. And we'll do that quietly and then I'll close us in prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Father, I join my brothers and sisters in praying, Lord, that you would graciously cause us to see what it is we are to take from this passage, in what ways your truth is speaking to sinful cravings, to angry outbursts, to a sinful warmth that we find from the world and drawing near to it. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you have promised that if your people will come to you and confess their sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse, even when we've come before. We're still encouraged to come again and to find your mercy. And so, Lord, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here that, that your word would be both penetrating and dividing thoughts and intents of the heart so that they might be exposed, but also that it would be healing, that it would be speaking your truth to us and calling us to humble ourselves before you. May there not be one of us this morning who is too prideful to confess 
if there is wickedness that we've been harboring, if there is conflict that we've been stoking. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you are the giver of good gifts. Help us to see confession and repentance as one of your good gifts, to not, to not be afraid that sin is the issue, that you are a God who longs for us to admit it and to turn from it and to ask for your help. Help us to embrace repentance as a sweet working of your grace in our lives. Lord, we pray that if there's anyone listening this morning here online who's not fully, singularly trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, does not know the, the, the reality of having sins forgiven because of Christ's work on the cross, pray that today would be the day that you'd open the eyes of their heart to embrace Jesus, to see that the sinless one died in the place of sinners so that he might give us life and forgiveness and that by his resurrection we might have life, eternal life, an abundant life. Lord, help us as we go from here, as we meditate this week, keep these words of James 4 fresh in our minds as we are, our hearts are churning and desiring. Help us to be a people who are thoughtful, who look at our desires, who measure them by your word and ask if we are being loyal to you or falling in line with friendship with the world. Help us to, by your spirit, to measure these things carefully. When we are tempted toward conflict, help us to ask questions of our heart. Our, our, what are we pursuing? What are we wanting? What are we driving for? Help us to desire your glory and your will first and foremost. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your abundant grace poured out upon your people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.